Chapter 4 The Manifestation of Thoughts In the context of the relationship of the spiritual son to his father, as well as the spiritual therapy this relationship brings about, the manifestation of thoughts is of fundamental importance. This practice tends to be closely associated with confession, but is distinguished from the latter in a significant way. While confession is a sacrament, the manifestation of thoughts is not. Accordingly, this revelation is not necessarily addressed to a priest, but to a spiritual father who may be a priest, or even a simple monk, for whom spiritual qualifications alone authorize this function. Although it is often the same man who acts as one's spiritual father and priest, and to whom one confesses and reveals thoughts, sometimes a person resorts to two different people for these two quite different practices. While confession consists in admitting one's sins to God in the presence of the priest, who, as the orthodox formula of confession says, stands merely as a witness, and in receiving absolution, the manifestation of thoughts consists in revealing to the spiritual father thoughts which are not necessarily sins, in the aim of making known to him one's inner state, so as to receive the appropriate advice for advancing along the spiritual path of healing and salvation. From another point of view, the fact that we are dealing here with the manifestation of thoughts could suggest at least a partial connection between this practice and that of psychoanalysis. But here again, we must note a fundamental difference. The manifestation of thoughts is not about reminiscing about the past. The fathers even forbid the detailed recounting of the past on account of the many disadvantages, even dangers, such a retelling presents. St. Mark the ascetic says, for example, quote, to recall past sins in detail inflicts injury. For when such recollection brings remorse, it deprives man of hope. But if he pictures the sins to himself without remorse, they pollute him again with the old defilement. And he notes, quote, when the noose and the intellect through rejection of the passions attains to unwavering hope, then the enemy makes it visualize its past sins on the pretext of confessing them to God. Thus he tries to rekindle passions which by God's grace have been forgotten, and so secretly to inflict injury. Then, even though someone is illumined and hates the passions, he will inevitably be filled with darkness and confusion at the memory of what he has done. But if he is still befogged, and self-indolent, he will certainly dally with the enemy's provocations and entertain them under the influence of passion, so that this recollection will prove to be a predisposition and not a confession." End of quote. The thoughts in question here are thus current thoughts, not merely any thoughts, but those that occur repeatedly and subsist somehow in the soul. To one of his correspondents, St. John of Gaza counsels, Quote, one does not have to question all the thoughts that sprout up in the heart, for they are passing, but one must question the thoughts that remain and wage war against man. End of quote. Likewise, St. Barsanufius recommends, quote, if a thought persists and wars against you, tell it to your father. In effect, these are the kinds of thoughts that can indicate to the spiritual father, in a significant way, the inner state, strains, impulses, dispositions and tendencies of his spiritual son, the suggestions to which he is subject, whether on account of his own desire or because of direct demonic activity. 
Thoughts of this nature also reveal the soul's weak spots, its fragile areas, which the demons more readily take as points of attack, its convalescing areas, where there is a risk of relapse, and, more commonly, its parts that are still sick. However, the revealing and manifestations of thoughts, in a broader sense, consist in revealing every troubling thought, every unusual state, and every doubt. In other words, everything that can unsettle or preoccupy a person. Likewise, through this manifestation, one can make known certain details of one's way of life, so as to assure their value after taking into account their impact on one's spiritual life. The ways in which the manifestations of thoughts is worked out in practice vary. Some recommend doing it at least every day. St. Simeon, the new theologian, advises doing so every hour. Such revelation can be made more frequently, even an indefinite number of times in the course of the same day, as, as we see in the example of the disciple who seeks out his elder eleven times in a row without the latter reproaching him in the least for this. But the frequency may also be less, and need not in fact depend on the thoughts themselves and the practical possibility of getting in touch with one's spiritual father. In some monasteries, there are fixed times for this practice. If one cannot contact the spiritual father right away, it is recommended to write down one's thoughts to the extent that they manifest themselves by noting the time and circumstances of their appearance so as to later to be able to recount them with all due precision. Obviously, this practice presupposes an intention, a watchfulness at all times regarding the states and movements of one's soul. Above all, what is important to apply the rule of non-omission, one must hide nothing and must try not to forget, elude, distort, or disguise anything, but rather to speak in all freedom without any fear or shame. St. Simeon the New Theologian advises, quote, As to God, tell your thoughts to your spiritual father without hiding anything. St. Dorotheus of Gaza recommends, one must not be silent on some matters and speak of others, but reveal all and in all things seek counsel. Abba Isaiah advises, If you question an elder on a thought, reveal the thought to him with freedom. St. John of Gaza adds, quote, For the one who questions, freedom with regard to thoughts is to reveal the thought completely to whomever he is questioning, to hide nothing of it, nor to disguise it in any way by shame, nor to ascribe it to someone else, but to himself as is fitting. This is more harmful than disguising the thought. For his part, St. John Cashin teaches, quote, Therefore the traces of the elders should always be followed with the greatest care, and everything that arises in our hearts should be brought to them without embarrassment. When revealing one's thoughts, it is necessary to vanquish the numerous interior forces of resistance, due in particular to pride, and vainglory, and on the basis of these two passions, to the fear of being judged or reproached. Additionally, one must also conquer the suggestions of the demons who fiercely endeavor to prevent this practice. They fear it especially on account of its effect of foiling their machinations. Normally, they oppose the revelation of thoughts by attempting to convince man of its uselessness, as the following testimony of a monk shows. This testimony is also valuable for understanding how abstaining from this practice hinders man's healing. 
quote from the alphabetical sayings of the Desert Fathers. I had in my soul a passion that was dominating me. Having heard that Abazino had healed many of it, I wanted to seek him out and open myself to him, often. I would go to the elder to tell him everything, but the enemy would not let me speak, filling my heart with shame and telling me, Since you know how to heal yourself, what use is it to speak of this? You are not neglecting yourself. You know what the fathers have said. This is what the adversary suggested to me lest I reveal my illness to the physician and be healed. Finally, distressed and in tears, I said to my soul, O oh, wretched soul, how long will you persist in not wanting to be healed? People who dwell far away come to the elder and are healed. But you, have you no shame in living so close to the physician and not being cared for? End of quote. The manifestation of thoughts is not only useful, but also necessary for spiritual progress. St. Basil teaches, quote, each person, if at least he wishes to make appreciable progress and live according to the precepts of our Lord Jesus Christ, must avoid keeping secret any movement in his conscience. On the contrary, he must reveal the secrets of his heart to those who have the mission of caring for the sick with sympathy and understanding. From St. Basil's Long Rule 26. One father goes so far as to claim, quote, there is no other sure path of salvation besides each person confessing his own thoughts to those of the fathers who are endowed with discernment. In the same vein, St. Theodore the Studite says, quote, may, all you know, may all know that for salvation, including perfection, there is no comparable means to the revelation of thoughts, nor one so quick. It is especially fitting to stress the therapeutic and preventative value of this practice, which takes on primary importance in the context of spiritual medicine. The manifestation of thoughts allows one to receive from the spiritual father indications regarding the spiritual value and importance of what is being revealed, as well as advice on the proper attitude to take regarding these thoughts. Passionless and endowed with discernment, the genuine spiritual father is able to apply objective judgment to what is shared with him. Illumined by the spirit, he is able to give fitting counsel. For example, he can say what the nature of a thought is and what it conceals, what consequences it is likely to have, whether it is neutral or bad, and how one must confront or fight against it. Does a given idea or inspiration to undertake some action come from the demons, or can one see it in an angelic idea, and thus one must follow through with it? Is a given mental image that has appeared several times, or a desire born in the heart in given circumstances, or any such movement of the soul, innocent, neutral, or evil? By consulting one's spiritual father, one will obtain a sure answer to these questions, an answer allowing one to escape the downsides of doubt, elude the errors and delusions of one's own judgment, and break free from the snares of one's own will, which leads an individual to act according to his own norms and his own desire instead of conforming himself to the divine will. Moreover, the Holy Fathers recommend the practice of revealing one's thought by insisting on the risks present in following one's own judgment and will. St. Anthony the Great writes, quote, I have known monks who after doing great works, fell and became mad for having trusted in their own works and for having eluded through false reasoning the commandment of him who said, Question your father and he will teach you. 
St. Pacomius even reports that for lack of having revealed their inner state to a spiritual father, quote, many have killed themselves, this one by throwing himself down from a high boulder in a fit of madness, another by cutting open his belly with a knife, others in other ways. For it is a great mistake not to disclose one's ill as soon as possible to him who possesses knowledge. End of quote. Such wanderings from the right path are most often attributable to demonic activity, which has easy access to man on account of his attachment to his own will. St. Dorotheus of Gaza warns, quote, If a man does not confess all that is within him, the devil will find in him a self-will that will allow him to overthrow him. From his instructions, he notes further, Whoever gives himself over entirely to his own thoughts is overthrown by the enemy at his convenience. The manifestation of thoughts, the confession of thoughts by which man gives himself over to the judgment and will of the, his spiritual father, thus appears to be an effective form of preventative care against all the disorders demonic activity can instigate in this context. St. John Cassian writes, quote, This instruction will not only teach how to walk on the right paths by the true way of discretion, but will also preserve him unhurt from all the snares and traps of the enemy. Whoever lives not by his own judgment, but by the example of our forebears, shall never be deceived, nor shall the crafty foe be able to take advantage of the ignorance of a person who does not know how to hide all the thoughts coming to birth in his heart because of a dangerous embarrassment, but either rejects them or accepts them according to the considered opinion of the elders. St. Dorotheus of Gaza counsels, quote, Let the soul make itself secure by revealing everything and by hearing someone competent say, quote, Do this, do not do that. Such a thing is good. This other thing is bad. This is a pretension of justice. This here is self-will. Again, this is not the time to do this. Have patience. And another time, now is the time. Thus the devil will never again find a pretext by which to harm the soul or cause it to fall, since it is constantly guided and protected on all sides. Dr. Lachey continues, Furthermore, hidden thoughts themselves serve as a pressure point for demonic activity, with the majority of them having been suggested for this very purpose. Thus, Patriarch Anthony III, the Studite, notes that nothing gives power to the demons and their fiendish suggestions as much as entertaining them in the heart. And Abba Piman, relating a teaching from Abba John Kolobus, says that as a result, quote, the enemy rejoices in nothing greater than in those who do not reveal their thoughts. St. Theodore the Studite also teaches, quote, you know how numerous are the devil's snares and tricks. No one will escape these except by the manifestation of thoughts. The manifestation of thoughts in particular allows one to avoid the sins brought about by hidden thoughts. St. Theodore the Studite asks, Whence does unreasonable activity come among you? Is it not because you do not reveal yourselves, but hide your evil thoughts? He notes further, The origin and root of the sins that we commit is a wicked thought. The revelation of thoughts also allows one to prevent the strengthening of existing passions or the forming of of new passions, produced when they are given free rein to repeat themselves. Finally, this revelation allows one to avoid having thoughts in the soul that destroy and gnaw away at it, 
and which in any case might have multiple pathological effects on the inner life, precisely because of their hidden character. Unrevealed thoughts continue to live in the soul, often silently and imperceptibly. They anchor themselves within it. They develop there, and gradually they poison the soul. In the end, they take the soul into captivity, from which escape will be all the more difficult since the soul will have refrained for a long time from reacting and will have been slow to manifest its thoughts. For this reason, St. John Cashin speaks of the, quote, despotism of hidden thoughts and the frightful dominion that the, they exercise as long as they are concealed. One elder summarizes all this as follows, quote, if you are harassed by impure thoughts, do not hide them, but tell them to your spiritual father as soon as possible. For to the extent that one conceals these thoughts, they multiply and grow in strength. As a worm gnaws through wood, so the wicked thoughts corrupts the heart. End of quote from the alphabetical sayings of the Desert Fathers. To continue, St. Theodore the Strudite advises in like manner, quote, I exhort you to make known the secrets of your heart, according to the word of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. For it is impossible that a plant, having a worm, should not perish, being slowly gnawed at by it, or that a soul harboring a serpent, I mean something not revealed, should not be filled with worms and end in total corruption. I therefore beseech you, reject each of you the hidden one gnawing within you. The Holy Fathers insist on this point. Whoever does not manifest his thoughts falls ill, or else maintains or aggravates his illnesses. St. John Climacus notes, quote, He who hides his bad thoughts from his spiritual father still wanders in trackless wastes. Step 9. The non-manifestations of thoughts leads to the development of illnesses in direct correlation with these thoughts, but furthermore seems to be necessarily linked to pride, which strengthens this hiding of thoughts, as one father notes, quote, whoever hides his thoughts is sick with pride. For this reason, St. Pacomius teaches, it is a great sin not to declare one's fault to one who has knowledge before the illness becomes chronic. End of quote. The manifestation, the confession of thoughts, is thus the only means by which man can guard himself from the illnesses threatening him, as well as be healed from the illnesses he has already contracted. St. John of Gaza notes, quote, Whoever refrains from telling his thoughts remains without a cure. St. John Cassian likewise says that when, quote, We conceal the things that disturb us within ourselves and are ashamed to make them known to the elders, we are unable to obtain a remedy for them. Conversely, whomever is not afraid of revealing his thoughts to his fathers chases them far away from himself, as St. Amamonas teaches. St. John Climacus observes, quote, Wounds displayed in public will not grow worse, but will be healed. Indeed, as another father relates, just as a serpent leaving its lair immediately slithers away, so too a wicked thought, once revealed, dissipates. Whoever manifests his thoughts is quickly healed. And the Tipican of the monastery, the Theotokos Evergetis, mother of God the Benefactress, in Constantinople proclaims, Now is the time for the manifestations of thoughts and the treatment of the illnesses of your soul. Plainly declare your illnesses in order to proceed to perfect health of soul. 
Healing arises in part due to this very manifestation. Whoever has just revealed his thoughts feels freed from the oppression and darkness they provoked in him. He is delivered from the worry, fear, inner turmoil, even the anguish and despair linked to these thoughts. He feels comforted and at peace, being light and joyful in his heart. Patriarch Anthony III, the Studite, exclaims, What thing is more filled with light than a soul always given over to this exercise? Those who have undertaken it know it. What hope, what carefreeness, what freedom they acquire. And furthermore, what lack of fear, what lessening of battles, what appeasement of thoughts, and finally, what purity of soul. The fathers place great emphasis on the state of spiritual carefreeness, which procures the habitual practice of the confession of thoughts. Recalling the time during which he had St. John of Gaza as a spiritual father, St. Dorotheus writes, I had no tribulation, no worry. If it happened that I should have a thought, I would take it out, my tablet, and write to the elder. And no sooner had I finished writing than I felt solace and profit. Such were my carefreeness and my rest. He recounts further, I would confine everything to the elder, Abba John, and would never assume to do anything without his advice. I would never allow myself to follow my thought without taking counsel. And believe me, brothers, I had great rest and was free of cares. These somewhat immediate effects of manifesting one's thoughts must not lead us to forget that a large part of the therapeutic efficacy relies on the counsels of the spiritual father engaged in this manifestation. Thanks to the indices given him by his spiritual son, the father is in a position to know exactly the inner state of his son, to make a, a precise diagnosis, and to determine a fitting treatment. Without this, man would hardly have a chance of being healed. Patriarch Anthony III, the Studite, writes, What one can see in bodily illnesses also takes place in diseases of the soul. The physician provides care and applies the cure to the place he had diagnosed and seen with his eyes. But whoever abandons himself to his own taste and acts according to his own ideas without making the illness of his soul known to the spiritual fathers through the manifestation of thoughts gains for himself the lamentable verdict. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. End of quote. Especially with the frequent and continued manifestation of thoughts, a spiritual father is able to implement an often lengthy treatment, ending with the healing of all the soul's illnesses, since he thus knows, both in detail and in general, the state, tendencies, and development of the sick person. It is in this sense that St. John Cassian writes, while calling to mind several passions, quote, The more often these vices are displayed, the quicker they are healed. Thus, one goes to the spiritual father to whom thoughts are revealed as though to a physician. St. Basil recommends disclosing the secrets of one's heart, quote, to those who have received the charge of caring for the sick. Long Rule 26. St. John Climacus advises, lay bare, lay bare your wound to the physician, and without being ashamed, say, it is my wound, father, it is my plague. Ladder Step 9. St. Barsanufius says, Tell your father the thought that lingers within you and wars against you, and he will heal you. St. John Cassian recommends everything should be revealed to the elders without any obfuscating embarrassment, and from, from them 
one may confidently receive healing for one's wounds. This medical notion is found in the rules of a good number of tipika. The tipikon of the monastery of the forerunner near Sarai in Macedonia demands, quote, that there be spiritual fathers in the monastery so that each monk might to whomever he shall have chosen disclose his wounds in conformity with the tradition of the holy canons so as to receive according to each kind of wound the fitting aid from the spiritual physicians by wounds are meant here thoughts it is thus very useful for one to have the physician close at hand the typical ordinance of the Macarius Monastery of the Most Holy Mother of God stipulates in its 11th chapter, which focuses on the manifestation of thoughts, that, quote, whoever exercises this function must take the greatest care to listen to those who wish to confess and inspire each with the fitting remedy. If the thoughts that are easily cut off and cause no enduring trouble are able to be heard by qualified brothers to whom the spiritual father has delegated this task, those thoughts requiring more attentive medical care are to be reported to him and he will apply the appropriate treatment. The spiritual father exercises his function of therapist in the context of the confession of thoughts by offering an attentive and benevolent listening ear, consoling and exhorting whoever has confided in him, taking upon himself the difficulties just revealed to him by his spiritual son and also by praying for him. This intercessory role of the spiritual father in the context of the manifestation of thoughts is often stressed by the holy fathers who thus attribute the therapeutic efficacy of this practice to an intervention of divine grace in response to the spiritual father's prayers. Thus St. Barsanufius states, tell your thoughts to your father and he will heal you by God's might. A brother says in the same vein, by the prayers of the elder, God healed me. However, all this assumes that whoever is manifesting his thoughts has the requisite attitude toward his spiritual father and through him toward God, namely, that he make his confession with faith and compunction and with all his heart, as this example from the sayings of the Desert Fathers highlights. One day, two brothers met one another, and the one said to the other, I would like to go to Abba Zinon and submit a thought to him. The other said, I also want to tell him a thought. Thus they went together, and each in turn disclosed their thoughts. The first one prostrated himself before the Yerunda and besought him with many tears. The Yerunda said, Go, do not be discouraged. Curse no one, and do not neglect your prayer. The brother departed and was healed. The other revealed his thought and said to him, Pray for me, but he did not ask this fervently. Sometime afterward, they had a chance to meet, and the one said to the other, When we went to visit the Yeranda, did you reveal to him the thought that you had said that you wanted to tell him? Yes, said the other. And he said to him, Did it benefit you to reveal it to him? The other said, Yes, by the prayers of the elder, God healed me. And he said, Well, I opened myself up to no avail. I haven't felt any result from the cure. The one who had profited said to him, and how did you beseech the elder? The other said, Pray for me, because I have such a thought. And I, said the other, in making my confession to him, bathed his feet with my tears, beseeching him to pray for me, and by his prayers God has given me health. End of quote.
In order for the revelation of thoughts to constitute an effective therapy, it is absolutely necessary that whoever seeks advice have total confidence in the one whom he seeks out. Abba Piman recommends, do not confide your conscience in someone whom your heart does not fully trust. So it is necessary to take much care at the beginning in choosing this person, but afterwards it's equally necessary to implement scrupulously the treatments he suggests. Thus, a father advises, quote, just as one does when dealing with physicians of the body, so too one must first of all test the ability of whomever one meets and then reveal the soul's wounds only to him. One must no longer gainsay his therapeutic methods, but rather accept them with gratitude, even if they cause suffering at the moment. From the Evrengetinos. Besides facilitating the confession of thoughts by giving assurance that one will neither be judged nor condemned by the one listening, it is precisely this trust that allows the recommend, recommended treatment to be realized, without the patient hesitating or manifesting any doubts as to its value, no matter the form it might take. It is also important that the manifestation of thoughts always be made to the same spiritual father, and that one remain faithful to him. The fathers warn against every desire for change, since this evinces a harmful reticence that almost always corresponds to demonic suggestion and risks leading to the worsening of one's ills. Always manifesting one's thoughts to the same father allows one to ensure the continuity and follow-through required by the treatment. In this way, the spiritual father is able to know well the person who opens his heart to him. He can know what are his strengths and weaknesses, his pe peculiar difficulties, his ingrained tendencies, his developmental track, etc., and thus can make a diagnosis and determine a course of therapy, both of which being grounded in the comprehensive knowledge of the patient's personality, his personhood, and his hypostases. The manifestation of thoughts is not an end in itself. Let us repeat, its therapeutic efficacy does not reside merely in the process itself per se, and one must not expect any immediate results from it. Manifestation of thoughts cannot by itself heal man. Even when no longer manifested, thoughts do not lose their pathogenic power. Thoughts that have arisen on multiple occasions run the risk of appearing again. What is thus more often important is their aim. Above all, revealing one's thoughts allows one to inquire of one's spiritual father, the ascetical texts often show these two expressions as being equivalent, so as to know their exact nature, and, more importantly, to obtain advice on how to fight them. Once this has been done, all that remains is to engage in this combat. Chapter 5. The Fight Against Thoughts 1. The Inner Warfare In the framework of a true therapeutic strategy that aims at healing man of spiritual illnesses and having him regain health, the fight against thoughts plays a central role. To abstain from every evil act and no longer to commit any sin indeed is but the first step and cannot suffice. One must likewise refrain from any wicked thought in order to avoid sinning in thought. One elder advises, quote, I beg you, brethren, let us suppress thoughts just as we suppress actions sayings of the desert fathers this is all the more necessary since the sins that man commits indeed have their source and origin in wicked thoughts the former almost always entail the latter 
and the external manifestation of, of the passions and wicked acts have their source in the internal manifestations of these same passions in the guise of internal movements, imaginings, or thoughts. Origen observes, quote, the source and origin of every sin are bad thoughts, and all the sins beat upon the intellect as thoughts, remarks in like fashion. St. Hezekiah the priest on watchfulness and holiness. Moreover, it is by means of thoughts that the demons act upon man. Those who are always trying to lay hold of our soul do so by means of impassioned thoughts, so that they may drive it into sin, either in mind or in action, observes St. Maximus, who explains in his four centuries on charity and love, the passions lying hidden in the soul provide the demons with the means of arousing impassioned thoughts in us. Then, fighting the intellect or noose through these thoughts, they force it to give its assent to sin. When it has been overcome, they lead it to sin in the mind. And when this has been done, they induce it to commit the sin in action. Thus, if a man does not first sin in his mind, he will never sin in action. End of quote. Consequently, one must fight against thoughts if one wishes to put an end to external and internal sins, and also if one wishes to free the soul from the passions. It would be useless to battle the passions by attacking only their external manifestations, since these have their root in the thoughts, and if such thoughts remain in the soul, other acts will inevitably result again from them. For this reason, Sirach writes, in Sirach 23, verses 2 to 3, quote, who will set whips over my thoughts, and the discipline of wisdom over my mind, that they may not spare me in my errors, and that it may not pass by my sins, in order that my mistakes may not be multiplied, and my sins may not abound. Then I will not fall before my adversaries, and my enemy will not rejoice over me. End of quote. Furthermore, it would be vain to believe, under the pretext that the passions are what attach us to sensual reality and apply to objects, being set in motion at the sight of them, that it would be sufficient to remove such objects or remove oneself from them in order to destroy the passions themselves. In reality, objects are not bad in themselves. Quote, nothing created and given existence by God is evil. As St. Maximus recalls, what is bad is the wrong use we make of objects. By means of the wrong conceptualizations we have of them, St. Maximus notes further, quote, Vice is the wrong use of our conceptual images of things, which leads us to misuse the things themselves. And, quote, The wrong use of objects is followed by the misuse of the things themselves. And it is consequently in the intellect's power to make good or bad use of these conceptual images. We see then that the proper target of our assault is not the objects, but their images, which we bear in our minds. Moreover, these images are made present by the memory and imagination, even when their corresponding objects are missing. For this reason, quote, the demons fight against us through our impassioned conceptual images of these things. And the war they wage against us by means of thoughts is more severe than that they war they wage by means of material things. And just as it is easier to sin in the mind than in action, so warfare through our impassioned conceptual images of things is harder than warfare through the things themselves. 
The holy ascetics, especially those who live in solitude, have observed that the passion's basic energy source are thoughts and imaginings, not only those which they themselves arouse, but also those which the demons propose to man, thoughts lying at the root of the birth and development of the passions, following a process which we shall later describe. St. Dorotheus of Gaza observes, quote, first the thoughts are born, and then the passions are manifested, end quote. Footnote, Evagrius opens a branch of inquiry in this, quote, let us broach the question of whether the thought causes the passions or the passions cause the thought, for some have held to the first view and others to the second, from Practicos 37. In fact, there is no divergence here. Both processes exist, and the Holy Fathers speak of one or the other on a case-by-case basis without considering the given approach as exclusive. To return to the text. All these reasons lead to one conclusion. The main occupation of the man concerned with his healing and salvation must be the fight against thoughts, which the fathers also term inner combat, invisible warfare, spiritual warfare, and the fight and war of the heart, constituting the spiritual ascesis and work of the heart, the sole means of purification of the soul, of its sins and of its healing it of both known and hidden passions. Like all the Holy Fathers, St. John Chrysostom stresses both the importance and severity of this combat. Quote, No barbarian people wages so relentless a war as do the wicked thoughts that lodge within the soul and the disordered passions. This is easily understood, since the first wave of enemies attacks us from without, and the second wave makes war against us from within. Without fail, one can observe that internal evils are most disastrous and pernicious than external ones. Nothing is more deadly to bodily health and strength than the infirmities that develop within it. Cities suffer less from foreign wars than from internal dissent. Likewise, the soul has less to fear from the snares laid for it in the world than from the illnesses whose seed the soul itself has sown. End of quote. St. Macarius the Great also teaches, man's entire fight must focus on the thoughts. He notes further, whoever wishes to become a Christian in truth must give himself over to combat that is not physical, but spiritual, against thoughts. By means of such combat, he will be able to obtain purification. Since the thoughts are supported, aroused, or else proposed by the demons, the fight against thoughts also appears at the same time to be a fight against the demons. Besides, we have seen that the fathers often liken passionate thoughts to the demons themselves. The Apostle clearly refers to this combat when he writes, quote, For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 This combat merely responds defensively to the truly offensive, ceaseless, and ruthless war the demons take up against man. St. Philotheus of Sinai describes it as follows, quote, It is by means of thoughts that the spirits of evil wage a secret war against the soul. For since the soul is invisible, these malicious powers naturally attack it invisibly. Both sides prepare their weapons, muster their forces, devise stratagems, clash in fearful battle, gain victories, and suffer defeats. End of quote.
40 texts on watchfulness. To continue, the subtle nature of thoughts, the ruses employed by the demons to madden men by means of such thoughts, and thus the difficulty of the battle to be fought, as well as the seriousness of what is at stake, lead the Holy Fathers to consider, quote, the art of fighting thoughts, art being understood here in the sense of technique, as the science of sciences and the art of arts. This is all the more so the case, since these same reasons led them to develop an extremely precise strategy grounded in the detailed knowledge of the adversaries and their arsenal, that is, the nature of thoughts and the process of their appearance and implementation, implantation within the soul. This strategy is absolutely necessary since, as Evagrius says, one must wage war methodically against the adversary in order for the fight to be effective and victorious. 2. The dual origin of thoughts. First of all, one ought to know that thoughts have two sources, the tendencies and predispositions of men on the one hand and demonic activity on the other. Man's tendencies are the passions, which as we have seen are first and foremost made manifest by thoughts. Predispositions are constituted by the remembrance of evil, the trace left in the soul by past sins, passions, or carelessnesses. St. Mark the ascetic thus defines predisposition as, quote, the involuntary presence of former sins in the memory. Moreover, impassioned thoughts and images are furnished mostly by the memory and the imagination, the latter being linked to the former. Thus, a predisposition may exist even after a person has broken off his solidarity with the corresponding passion, or after not having committed it for quite some time the sin that established the passion in the soul. Evagoras writes on this subject, quote, If we have impassioned memories of something, this is because we previously received objects with passion. Conversely, everything we receive with passion will engender impassioned remembrances. And St. Mark the Ascetic, who more than anyone else insisted on the importance of predispositions, states, quote, a passion which we allow to grow within us through our own choice afterwards forces itself upon us against our will. And when we have freed ourselves from every voluntary sin of the mind, we should then fight against the passions that result from predisposition. And do not say, I don't want it, but it happens, for even though you may not want the thing itself, yet you welcome what causes it. And when you find that some thought is disturbing you deeply in yourself and is breaking the stillness of your intellect or noose with passion, you may be sure that it was your noose which, taking the initiative, first activated this thought and placed it in your heart. In other words, besides truly voluntary thoughts, there are in the soul thoughts that are truly involuntary, but which once were voluntary. As consequences, they are involuntary, but derive from voluntary causes. Thus, St. Mark writes further, quote, We have a love for the causes of involuntary thoughts, and that is why they come. In the case of voluntary thoughts, we clearly have a love not only for the causes, but also for the objects with which they are concerned. And... Involuntary thoughts arise from previous sin, voluntary ones from our free will 
Thus the latter are the cause of the former. The other source of thoughts is demonic activity, which exerts itself either indirectly on the soul through the intermediary of the body by means of the senses as well as internal movements and impulses, or directly, primarily by means of the memory and the imagination. This use the demons make of man's faculties in arousing thoughts leads us to feel that all these evil thoughts arise from the heart, as St. Diodokos of Photiki notes, whereas this is not the case at all for some of them. Most often, demons arouse passionate thoughts by means of the tendencies and or predispositions lying within man, as the Holy Apostle St. James indicates. Quote, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James 1.14 St. Isaac the Syrian writes, In all temptations, condemn yourself as being the cause of whatever comes to you. Sadako Homily 80 Indeed, as St. Maximus the Confessor quite precisely notes, quote, The passions lying hidden in the soul provide the demons with the means of arousing impassioned thoughts in us. Four centuries on love. Additionally, St. John Cassian notes that the soul, just like the body, is stricken by illness at one or more points where it shows itself to be weak. Here from Conference 24, quote, When certain illnesses occur, as is usually the case with respect to human bodies, those that are weaker are the first to give in and succumb in such instances. And as when the disease rages in them more violently, the healthy parts as well are injured by the same malady, it is likewise inevitably the case that when the pestilential breath of vice blows over us, the soul of each one of us is tried more, most severely by the passion in its feebler and weaker part, which does not so strongly resist the onslaughts of the powerful enemy. It runs the risk of being taken captive the more nonchalantly it leaves itself open to betrayal as a result of negligent custody. Similarly, then, the evil spirits greatly try each one of us by their sly wickedness, and they set snares in particular for the dispositions in which they sense that the soul is weak. End of quote. To continue, however, we must know that the demons can also suggest to man thoughts or images having no connection to his tendencies or predispositions, even though in this case also he might have the illusion that these representations come from himself. As St. Macarius the Great notes, there is an adverse power of malice that secretly directs, leads astray the human race towards evil, invisibly teaching it in the heart all manner of impiety. From that point on, all men have only to put into action what has been suggested to them in secret, despite the free will of each. The majority do not know where these suggestions come from, but they believe in a natural tendency on account of their customarily seeing wicked thoughts contrary to nature, gushing from their heart. End of quote. In this regard, demonic activity spares no person and molds itself to each person's spiritual level. For this reason, even the saints themselves, who by theanthropic asceticism have attained dispassion and obtained the purification of their past faults, and thus in whom neither tendencies nor predispositions even remain, must confront thoughts suggested to them by the demons, and which constitute for them so many diverse temptations. The fathers even stress that demonic activity increases and that the thoughts 
suggested multiply in accordance with a person's spiritual progress. A well-known patristic maxim states that man must, quote, expect temptation until his last breath, from the sayings of the Father's alphabetical series, Anthony, and that he will have to fight against the thoughts suggested by the demons until his last gasp. Job said, What a time of temptation is the life of man on earth. Job 7.1 In the same vein, St. Isaac the Syrian notes, Man cannot but have thoughts until death. Sedical Homily 83 St. Simeon the New Theologian writes, quote, Man has received the power not to accomplish evil, but not that of not having the notion of it. St. Hezekiel the priest writes, Just as it is impossible when walking not to part the air, so it is impossible for a man's heart not to be assailed continually by demons or be secretly energized by them. And St. John Damascene calling to mind especially the eight types of evil thoughts that correspond to the eight main passions, notes, quote, whether these eight thoughts disturb us or not forms part of the things that do not depend on us. The aim pursued by the demons is the in their arousal of thoughts within man's heart is to maintain the passions within the person inhabited by them, as well as to drive him to sin and deed. The goal can also be to reintroduce them to the person who has been delivered from them, or again to disturb this person's prayer and prevent him from attaining to contemplation. In any case, their intent is to turn man away from God and cause him to distance himself from the Lord. From this point of view, every thought appears to be a temptation, all the more so since, as we shall see, it is possible for man in every case to follow the thought that appears to him and thus do the will of the demons, or to distance himself from it and do God's will. Every thought presented to man thus appears as a test that can lead both to his fall and his salvation, according to the choice he makes. If man is able to perpetuate or relapse into his diseased state by giving in to temptation, he is conversely able to be healed or avoid a relapse by not giving in to it. Thinking of this second aspect, St. Isaac the Syrian states, Temptation is useful to every man, and proclaims, Glory to the Master, who with most bitter remedies gives us the delights of health. Sedical Homily 48 Even St. James the Apostle stresses this positive function of temptation. Quote, Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. While for the man in whom the passions dwell, every thought that presents itself is an occasion from being freed from them and being purified of his sins, for the man who lives according to the virtues, the thought is an opportunity to strengthen these virtues, as St. Barsanufius writes to one of his spiritual sons, quote, May the throng of passions and demonic fantasies not disconcert you, but believe that they gain nothing in harassing us and tempting us. But on the contrary, they bring virtue. As a result, if we take great care to hold on to a, a bit of endurance, the presence of fire make gold appear more brilliant. So too is it with the accumulation of temptations for the righteous. End of quote. St. Amamonas notes, quote, After temptations, 
The strength of the Spirit adds another greatness and a greater strength. At any rate, the Fathers highlight that spiritual progress is visible thanks to temptations, and particularly to the thoughts by which such temptations are presented to man. St. Amonas writes, quote, If you never encounter temptation, visibly or hidden, you cannot progress beyond your current state. St. Anthony the Great even sees in this a necessary condition for salvation. Quote, Whoever has not been tempted will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. For it is said, remove temptations and no one is saved. Thus man's spiritual destiny depends on his behavior toward thoughts. By the ascent to thoughts, the passions are born and persist, and demons take possession of the soul or else continue to abide in it. Conversely, by refusing thoughts, man can by God's help be delivered from his passions and advance in virtue, uniting himself to God and growing within this union. However, if man does not keep close watch, he risks being enslaved by the thoughts that present themselves to him. There is a moment when rejecting the thought is easy, another when it is difficult, and another when it has become almost impossible. The fight against the thoughts presupposes a precise knowledge of the thought's mode of acting on the soul and the soul's attitude toward the thoughts. Temptation, as the fathers have noted, operates according to an invariable mechanism composed of different moments corresponding to the evolution of man's behavior toward the suggested thought. 3. The Mechanism of Temptation The different stages of temptation are 1. Suggestion or provocation. St. Philotheus of Sinai gives a definition of this taken from St. John Climacus in Ladder, Step 15. Quote, provocation, they say, is a thought still free from passion or an image newly engendered in the heart and glimpsed by the noose. End of quote. St. John Damascene says that this is simply what the enemy suggests to us. St. Mark the ascetic defines provocation as the simple representation of a wicked work. Moreover, by defining it as a movement of the heart without an image, he does not mean that no image exists whatsoever, for this would contradict his previous definition. Rather, this image or thought is not developed and thus can be likened to a sort of movement or first impulse. 2. Coupling. St. John Damascene defines it as, quote, the accepting of the thought that the enemy has suggested to us, and St. John Climacus more precisely as conversation with what has presented itself, accompanied by passion or dispassion. Philotheus of Sinai footnote gives the same definition. Coupling is to commune with this thought or image in either an impassioned or dispassionate way, from 40, 40 texts on watchfulness. To continue, at this last statement, as it indicates, two degrees of coupling are distinguished. The first degree is that of simple converse with the thought, in which man turns his attention to the thought and entertains it, holding converse with it, but dispassionately, that is, without any attachment to it. Second degree consists of coupling proper, in which man truly enters into relationship with the thought, attaching and uniting himself to it, while taking pleasure in it. 
As St. Hezekius the priest observes, man thus mixes his own thoughts and images with the thoughts and images of the demonic suggestion. On the basis of this union, the demonic image or thought, quote, waxes and burgeons until it appears lovely and delectable to the welcoming and despoiled intellect, which is not far from allowing itself to be seized by the thought. Nonetheless, at this stage man has united himself to the thought, but has not yet cleaved unto it and accepted it fully. 3. Consent is the, quote, the bending of the soul to what has been presented to it, accompanied by delight. At this stage, man gives his complete assent to what has been proposed to him, accepting to follow the thought and act accordingly, and thus giving himself over fully to the pleasure the thought furnishes with him. For captivity, having given his full consent to the thought, man becomes captive to it. St. John Climacus defines captivity as a forcible and involuntary rape of the heart, or a permanent association with what has been encountered, which destroys the good order of our condition. 5. Accomplishment. St. John Damascene defines this as the very act of the impassioned thought to which one has consented. Having given his consent to the thought and being captive to it, man proceeds to the act, accomplishing the sin indeed. 6. Passion. The repeated consent to a thought of the same type causes the corresponding passion either to be born or to be reinforced if already present. St. John Climacus defines it thus, quote, Passion, they say, is preeminently that which for a long time nestles with persistence in the soul, forming therein a habit, as it were, by the soul's long-standing association with it, since the soul of its own free and proper choice clings to it. Man's culpability along this chain of actions is not the same at all links. One provocation is without sin and does not incur guilt. We have seen how it is not up to us not to be tempted. It is beyond our power not to be surrounded by suggestions that come from the demons. We can thus in no way be held responsible for what is not up to our will. Adam was assailed by demonic suggestions in paradise, and Christ himself experienced the same, though without having ever sinned. 2. Coupling can be without sin, since in the first degree of this stage man can entertain a thought without being attached to it in any way, and as we shall see, with the aim of rejecting it. But, as St. John Climacus notes, it is not always sinless. As we have seen, there is already in the second degree a union with the thought in which man takes a certain delight. Nonetheless, it is not entirely a sin, inasmuch as man has not yet consented to the thought. 3. Consent. This stage truly constitutes sin, and it is consent that the demons seek to obtain. St. Mark the Ascetic. Insofar as man has not consented to a thought, he remains free and escapes from the demon's power, which is limited to suggestion. Once has his consent has been given, sin has definitely been committed. Man becomes captive to the thought, finds himself bound despite himself, and can no longer make any retreat. Dorotheus of Gaza's instructions. If the Holy Fathers describe the process of temptation with such precision, it is to stress that while it is beyond our control not to be in the midst of the temptations, 
it is completely up to us either to accept or reject such temptations. Their descriptions show that up until a certain point in the process to wit consent, it is totally within our power to avoid being subjected to the thoughts. From this point on, we lose this power to flee, and the Father's right so that we might interrupt this process in time to flee. For this reason, St. John Chrysostom writes, quote, in his homily on Hosea, Among the wicked thoughts, some do not even cross the threshold of our soul if we have been able to provide it with good battlements. Others, if we take not guard against them, grow after being born in us. Yet if we are able to hinder their progress, they are promptly suffocated and buried. Finally, others are born, grow, and blossom forth into wicked actions, completely ruining the health of our soul as soon as our negligence has gone too far. The knowledge of this process thus allows one to implement a proper strategy for checking against the thoughts and the demonic intrigues that give rise to them. 4. The Spiritual Strategy Vigilance and Attention in this strategy, two attitudes are of utmost importance, vigilance and attention. This recommendation to be attentive and vigilant is frequently encountered in the Holy Scripture. Christ himself makes it several times. Take heed, watch, watch therefore. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. Mark thirteen thirty-three and following. Remain here and watch, Mark 14, quote, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, Mark 14, 38, and blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them so, blessed are those servants, Luke 12, 37, and but watch at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man, Luke 21.36. Likewise, the Apostle writes, Come to your right mind and sin no more. 1 Corinthians 15.34. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. 1 Thessalonians 5.6. And St. Peter, keep sane and sober. 1 Peter 4.7. And be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. The same guidance is found countless times in the words and writings of the Holy Fathers. And attention and vigilance are presented in the lives of the saints as virtues that they possess to the highest degree. These two very similar attitudes, both terms often being used synonymously, constitute a prerequisite for every spiritual life. It is in large part thanks to them that man is able to, by divine grace, be freed from sin and to avoid relapsing into it. At the same time, these attitudes allow him to be united closely to God and to remain attached to him, this being the aim of these attitudes. For this reason, Abba Pimon says, quote, Vigilance, attention to oneself, and discernment are the guides of the soul. Even going so far as to claim that we have need of nothing beside a watchful mind. Furthermore, we must specify that in order to be fully effective, attention and vigilance must be permanent and without fail. Certainly, this is not immediately possible, but one must labor at achieving it. 
The fathers assert by their own experience that the experienced man is capable of such attention and vigilance, even while being occupied with various activities. Thus, St. John of Gaza writes, quote, The perfect are perfectly attentive to themselves, like the craftsman who knows his trade perfectly. If, while he labors, it happens that he should meet some people, their converse does not prevent him from pursuing his art at the same time. Those who are advanced in the spiritual life evince such vigilance even during their sleep, as this word from the Song of Songs bears witness recalled by St. John Climacus, I sleep, but my heart is awake. And as St. John of Gaza affirms, quote, If the heart keeps watch, the body's slumber is not. To be attentive to and watch over oneself, according to the frequent recommendations of the fathers, means generally to be concerned with oneself, that is, with one's spiritual being and destiny, rather than with external things. This means especially to endeavor to know and recognize one's spiritual illnesses, which knowledge is the condition for healing. St. Basil says, quote, from his homily on the words, Take heed to thyself. In all things you must strive to know the status and illnesses of your soul, for many have dangerous infirmities of which they are not aware. God warns us not to meddle in any way in healing the ills of others, nor to inquire in any way into the nature of their illnesses, but rather to reserve a portion of our care and effort so as to delve into the recesses of our own heart. End of quote. More generally, this means being attentive to one's whole being, keeping watch at once over one's body and soul, monitoring one's external behavior in order to avoid evil acts, and guarding one's inner life in order to avoid wicked thoughts. Thus it is written in the book of Proverbs, quote, The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. He who guards his way preserves his life. Proverbs sixteen seventeen. And St. Gregory Palamas notes, quote, from his triads, Moses says, Take heed to yourself. Deuteronomy 15.9, that is, to your whole self, and not merely a part while neglecting the rest. Therefore, place this guard, Nipsis, on your soul and body. Trust yourself to this guard, this attention. Do not lose control of yourself, but rather keep guard. Be vigilant and watch over yourself. Ecclesiastes says, if the spirit of the ruler, that is, the ruler of wicked spirits and passions, rises against you, do not leave your place. That is, leave no part of your soul, no part of your body unguarded. Thus you shall become inaccessible to the spirits that attack you from below. End of quote. Meanwhile, since, as we have seen, acts follow from thoughts, upon which depend the birth and perpetuation of the passions, the fathers especially suggest that we focus our intention and vigilance on the latter. Man's spiritual healing is especially contingent on this focus, and that is why vigilance and attention appear, above all, as remedies of primary importance at this level. In a homily on these same words from Deuteronomy 4.9 and 15.9, Take heed to thyself. St. Basil says, Take heed to yourselves, and do not conceal wicked thoughts within your mind. We are fragile, and we sin easily in thought. For this reason, God, who formed our hearts, knowing that the movements of our will cause us to fall into various disorders, advises us to preserve in great purity the rational part of the soul, since it is what rules and directs. 
one must guard with greater care that which is more inclined to sin. Skillful, skillful physicians, knowing the temperament of weak bodies, prescribe them remedies in order to strengthen them. Thus God has given us more means to strengthen the weaker part in us. End of quote. One, to be attentive and vigilant with regard to one's thoughts is first of all constantly to watch over one's heart in such a way as to be able to note the thoughts that are born within it as soon as they arise and constantly to be on guard so as to be able to confront the sudden and unforeseeable attacks of the enemy. This is why vigilance is often called the guarding of the heart. Footnote is sometimes called the guarding of the mind or the guarding of the noose. See Hezekiah the priest on watchfulness and holiness and Philotheus of Sinai's 40 texts on watchfulness. But the first expression is more fitting, the guarding of of the heart, since guarding the mind, properly speaking, refers to the avoiding of any representation, even a good one, an avoidance which is the condition for pure and undistracted prayer, as we shall see later on. On this distinction, we can see as what follows. To return to the text. At the door of the heart, the mind must have the attitude of a sent sentinel, who simultaneously surveys his surroundings, paying attention to the slightest movement, shape, or noise, and always positions himself so as to inter intervene. On the first point, St. Hezekiel, the priest writes, quote, it, it is the task of unceasing watchfulness to see the mental images of evil thoughts as soon as they are formed in the intellect. For his part, St. Philotheus of Sinai says that it is a matter of observing the attacks of the demons and their snares woven of fantasy. St. Basil advises, cast your glance all around lest you be caught unawares. On the second point, St. Gregory the Great notes, vigilance must exist at all times. One must constantly be ready for action and to engage the adversary in combat. Our distrust must ceaselessly foresee his con covert maneuvers. If one does not wish for hidden and sudden temptation to come at us as a surprise, one must of a permanent necessity keep it at bay with the sword of our vigilance. End of quote. This saying from an elder sums up these two points. Quote, the work of a monk is to behold his thoughts from afar, from the sayings of the Holy Desert Fathers. On this subject, we can recall this word of Christ. If the householder had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Luke 12.39 2. Secondly, being attentive and vigilant means examining every thought as soon as it has been noticed, and then discerning its nature so as to see exactly whether a good, neutral, or evil thought is at hand. Calling to mind the first of these two phrases, St. John of Gaza counsels, Do the same thing for all thoughts. As soon as the thought arises, examine it. St. Ezekiel the priest describes the phase thus, Watchfulness is a continual fixing and halting of thought at the entrance to the heart. In this way, predatory and murderous thoughts are marked down as they approach, and what they say and do is noted. And we can see in what sp spacious and delus delusive form the demons are trying to deceive the noose. The aim of this first phase, the examination of a thought, is the second, the discernment of the thought's exact nature. 
St. Macarius writes, a man of God must not enter the wake of a single thought without using discernment. St. Ezekiel the priest notes, the glance of your intellect should be quick and keen, able to perceive the invading demons. One of the sayings of the Desert Fathers states, the elders used to say, to every thought that arises within you, say, are you from our side or do you come from the enemy? And it will certainly divulge this. This latter one is a piece of advice given in text form by Evagrius. Quote, Be the gatekeeper of your heart, and to every thought that presents itself, ask this question. Are you from our side or from the enemy? St. John of Gaza speaks similarly. To guard one's heart is for the one at war to have a clear and, and vigilant mind. If you want to know who you're dealing with, with an enemy or with a friend, cry out in prayer and ask him, are you from our side or from the enemy? And he will tell you the truth. Three, if it is a matter of good or neutral thought, a man may let it penetrate him more deeply, since it is of no consequence except the case when one is in a state of prayer. Such thoughts hinder pure prayer. St. Nil Sorsky writes on this subject. From his rule number one, quote, If this type of thoughts enter and remain within the soul during necessary tasks in life, and not at the moment of prayer, such a situation is sinless. Even the saints fulfilled sinlessly and in dignified manner the obligations of bodily life. With every thought of this type, say the fathers, our mind remains united to God if it keeps itself in a pious attitude. However, the same is not true when it comes to a wicked thought. Man must absolutely avoid getting into it and reject before reaching the stage of consent in the process we've outlined above. 5. The Rejection of Wicked Thoughts Two approaches are possible in rejecting a wicked thought that presents itself. One, the first approach, which one could call anti-rhetoric, consists in allowing the thought to penetrate further until it reaches the first stage of coupling, at which point converse devoid of all passion with the thought ensues, as we have seen. In the context of this conversation with the thought, man must contradict and reject it. This rejection consisting in opposing the thought with contrary arguments, in practice most often taking the form of brief excerpts from Holy Scripture in exact rebuttal. Man, writes St. Macarios, must thus ponder the words of God's commandments and make them the goal of his mind, also that the pious and antagonistic thought within us might conquer evil. St. John Climacus notes, Of this first approach he bears testimony who said, So shall I give an answer to those who reproach me. Psalm 118.42 And again, Thou hast made us a gainsaying among our neighbors. This is why we find Abba Joseph of Penifo, advising the following to someone who asked him what to do when thoughts approach. Let them enter and fight them, thus justifying this counsel. If they enter and if you fight them by taking and giving blows, they will make you more experienced. St. Hezekias the priest teaches the same. Once the intellect is unceasingly engaged in the battle of perceiving in their true light these thoughts, we should admit them and censure them. However, such a manner of combating thoughts must remain reserved for those who are sufficiently advanced in the spiritual life 
lest a person allow himself to be ensnared in this conversation by the enemy's arguments and find himself conquered by him in the end. Abba Joseph of Panifro recognizes this implicitly, advising another visitor who asked him the same question as the previous guest, not at all to allow thoughts to penetrate. For his part, St. John of Gaza writes quite explicitly to one of his spiritual sons, quote, To retort is not for everyone, but for those who are powerful, according to God, to whom the demons are subject. For if someone without this power should retort, the demons will hold him in derision, since he is in their power, yet gives them rejoinder. St. Barnesanufius writes in like manner to one of his disciples, Regarding the accepting of a thought that presents itself, it pertains only to the perfect to allow it to enter, and consequently to chase it away. But for you, do not bring fire into your forest, lest it be consumed entirely. Do not get yourself into trouble, for you would not resist such a temptation. And commenting on Abba Joseph of Penefo's twofold response, he says again with regard to thoughts, Whoever is capable of resisting and fighting them without being conquered allows them to enter, whereas whoever is weak and incapable of doing so and who would instead give his consent must not do this. Even if a person is not conquered, he risks leaving the fight wounded or defiled if he is not strong enough. St. Isaac the Syrian stresses this, and for this reason advises against this manner of combat. From his ascetical homily number 33, Quote, it is not always in our power to oppose the thoughts fighting against us so as to stop them. But we often receive wounds that do not heal for quite some time. Arguing with the demons allows them to arm themselves against you. They will be able to wound you beyond what your wisdom and feeling will set against them. But even if you were to vanquish them, the filth of the thoughts would sully your contemplation and you would still smell their foul odor for quite some time. The fact that this type of combat is reserved for the perfect does not mean, though, that it is the most perfect form of combat. Besides the risk it runs of defeat, this combat type makes possible a kind of development of suggestion, which, as St. Mark the ascetic notes, is invariably accompanied by a certain turmoil that the perfect justly avoid. This turmoil of soul entails that one must take a certain interest in and stop on a thought, which thus turns the mind away from the exclusive attention that pure prayer demands. In the end, the mind plays the demon's game to a certain extent. For this reason, St. John of Gaza advises one of his disciples, quote, Do not contradict, for this is what they desire. They will never cease. This is why the author method of combat must be judged as being preferable. Moreover, it is the one that the fathers recommend most often, even more so because it is more direct and efficacious than the first. St. Isaac says that by employing it, one reaches the shortest path and avoids wandering on the long road. This constitutes rapid refutation. Two, the second type of combat, which concerns a form of practicing vigilance, consists in not allowing the thoughts that present themselves to enter at all. By rejecting them, the fathers also say, cut short, cut off, put down, cast away. As soon as they are born and at the very moment they appear, that is, before it even becomes a suggestion. St. Hezekias, the priest, advises, 
As soon as we perceive demonic suggestions, we should counterattack and repulse them. St. Philotheus of Sinai notes, The person who rebuffs the initial provocation has at one stroke cut off all the sinful stages that follow. The fathers insist on this. One must not accept the enemy's seed, much, must, much less tarry on the image or thought suggested by him. In any case, both these two forms of counterattack prevent the thoughts themselves from persisting. It is a matter of blocking, right from the outset, the process of temptation we previously described. St. Ezekiel the priest writes, quote, If our intellect, our noose, is experienced, well-trained, and used to guarding itself and to examining clearly and openly the seductive fantasies and deceits of the demons, it will instantly quench the fiery darts of the devil. It will not allow the impassioned fantasy to consort with it or allow our thoughts passionately to conform themselves to the fantasy or to become intimate with it or be distracted by it or give assent to it. Conversely, allowing this process to unfold risks placing oneself, if not on the road to ruin, then at least soon thereafter committing oneself to a harsher combat that could have been avoided. Thus, St. Kirill of Jerusalem advises, do not accept the seed. Before it blossoms, tear out evil all the way to the root, lest your initial nonchalance prove later only to give you much cause to think of axes and fire. Matthew 3.10 Begin with healing your wicked eyes at an opportune time so as not to have to seek out a physician once you've become blind. <clears throat> An image used frequently by the fathers is that of a serpent. If you let the head pass by, the rest of the body will easily follow. For this reason, St. John Cassian writes, quote, We should always remember the injunction, guard your heart with all diligence, and according to God's first command, be watchful for the poisonous head of the serpent, that is, the first arising of evil thoughts, by which the devil tries to wriggle into our minds. Nor should we carelessly allow the rest of his body to penetrate our hearts, that is, giving consent to distraction. Be sure that if he is once allowed in, his deadly bite will destroy the conquered mind. And St. Gregory of Nyssa counsels, if you wish to avoid a common life with the serpent, watch out for the head. That is the first attack of evil. The commandment listed by the Lord relates to this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 Another father likewise explains, The thoughts have but one head. If at the outset you do not recognize the head, so as to cast it out from you, you will be seized and deceived by the thoughts to follow. So, if you want to conquer the passions, always watch the head of the thoughts, and when you discover what it is, fight against it alone. St. Hezekias the priest gives the same advice. As soon as you recognize a thought that is entering, quote, you should at once rebut it, crushing it like the head of a serpent. The fathers symbolically call suggestions, quote, the head of the serpent, but also the firstborn of Egypt. Egypt symbolizing in spiritual discourse the passions as a whole, or the infants of Babylon, Babylon also symbolizing the land of passions inhabited by the demons. When they advise exterminating the thoughts ruthlessly, 
as soon as they're born, they're often recalled these two verses from Psalm 136, verses 8 through 9, quote, O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. According to the Father's interpretation, the rock here means Christ called upon in prayer. 6. The Role of Prayer and Patience In the fight against thoughts, prayer plays an absolutely essential role along with nipsis, attention, and vigilance, regardless of whether the rebuttal is long or quick. Christ himself associates these with one another, quote, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The fathers merely repeat this commandment of his, so much so that prayer seems to be, along with vigilance, the key weapon at the soul's disposal for successfully confronting both temptations and those who incite them, as well as the main cure for the wicked thoughts. The Father's most frequently advice is to resort to the Jesus prayer, which has several advantages in this area. One, by reason of the brevity of its formulation, the prayer can instantly be wielded against the suggestion, as is fitting and allows man to be just as quick as the latter in his reaction. As St. John Climacus says, if one allows one to banish by a single thought the thoughts that assault us at the very moment that they appear. Two, its continual nature allows it to go hand in hand with vigilance, which presupposes this same quality. Finally, and most importantly, the name of Jesus contained in the prayer has great power against the thoughts and those who suggest them. As St. John Climacus says when he advises, Flog your enemies with the name of Jesus, for there is no stronger weapon in heaven or on earth. Latter step 21.7. For this reason, St. Hezekiah the priest recommends, quote, Whenever we are filled with evil thoughts, we should throw the invocation of our Lord Jesus Christ into their midst. Then, as experience has taught us, we shall see them instantly dispersed like smoke in the air. Elsewhere, the same saint counsels, as soon as he has rebuttaled the devil, let him call to Christ. Then he will see the devil broken and routed by the venerable name of Jesus. will see him and his dissimulation scattered like dust or smoke before the wind. Meanwhile, there is nothing magical about this. By invoking the name of Jesus, man takes refuge in Christ, so as to receive through his name protection and help. Through the prayer, he asks for and receives, if he prays correctly, the grace that secures him and by which he conquers his enemies. As St. Philotheus of Sinai says, Jesus, when invoked, disperses the demons together with all their fantasies. Forty texts on watchfulness. Without prayer, man would remain limited to his own strength, and this would never be sufficient in the face of such cunning adversaries for him to obtain victory. St. Ezekiel the priest, he issues this warning, quote, if we trust only our own watchfulness and attentiveness, we shall quickly be pushed aside by our enemies. We shall be overturned and cast down by their extreme craftiness. We will become ever more fully entangled in their nets of evil thought. He continues to state, it is impossible to repulse the provocation of an evil thought without invoking Jesus Christ. 
Through prayer, man obtains the absolutely necessary help from God, whose omniscience foils the demon's craftiness, and whose omnipotence destroys their power. St. Ezekiel the priest writes, So you must never relax your prayers to Jesus Christ our God. You will not find a greater help than Jesus in all your life, for he alone as God knows the deceitful ways of the demons, their subtlety and their guile. St. Barsanufius, for his part, advises, Have recourse to God against your enemies, casting forth your powerlessness in his presence, for he is able not only to shut their mouths, but also to render them powerless. Only prayer is able not only to repulse, but also to destroy foreign thoughts. What instantly extinguishes and destroys every demonic concept, thought, fantasy, illusion, and idol is the invocation of the Lord writes St. Hezekius the priest. And St. Philotheus of Sinai notes in the same vein, quote, The blessed remembrance of Jesus dissolves all trickeries of thought, plots, argumentation, fantasies, obscure conjectures, and in short, everything with which the destroyer arms himself, and which he insolently deploys in his attempt to swallow our souls. When Jesus is invoked, he promptly burns up everything. Only prayer can totally purify the heart, that is, destroy even the mark and imprint of passion itself, and completely erase the traces that thoughts leave in the heart after their passage, especially if one has allowed himself to converse with them and thus mingle his own thoughts with them. Thus, <clears throat> by prayer linked with vigilance and especially by the Jesus prayer, quote, we will adorn the chamber of our heart, as St. Hezekiah the priest says, until we cause it to attain perfect health. Nevertheless, attaining this goal requires much patience, and the recommendation to be patient often appears alongside that of being vigilant and praying, as though forming an indispensable attitude for fighting well against thoughts. On the one hand, the thoughts reappear insofar as their root has not been destroyed, and the tendencies and predispositions from whence they are born persist in the heart. On the other hand, the battle arouses demonic activity and causes temptations to abound. St. Macarius notes, quote, The devil arms himself against us if we endure his acts courageously. <clears throat> the fight against thoughts is thus a long-term task, and obtaining a total victory over some thoughts demands sometimes several decades of intense combat, which are inevitably accompanied by suffering. During all this time, despondency permanently lies in wait for the fighter. Here, patience, along with prayer, forms a remedy offered to man, as St. Amanonos of the desert stresses. Endure temptations until you overcome them. The cure for enduring temptations is not to grow despondent, and to pray to God by giving thanks to him from your whole heart, and by having patience in all things they will thus depart from you. With prayer, patience seems to be a sure means of obtaining victory. St. Mark the Ascetic advises, escape from temptation through patience and prayer. This accords with what the Holy Apostle James writes. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is also one of the meanings behind this promise of Christ's 
He who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10.22 Man must pray in order to be patient, just as he must pray in order to be vigilant. If vigilance presupposes effort on man's part, it must be exercised in synergy with God's grace in order to have an effect. This is why the fathers, even while exhorting man to be vigilant, remind him that vigilance is a charisma, and all the more so when it is more perfect. Especially through prayer, and above all, the Jesus prayer, man is able to receive this grace. St. Hezekiah the priest writes, quote, Watchfulness and the Jesus prayer mutually reinforce one another, from Unwatchfulness and Holiness, chapter 94. And if you really wish to watch over your heart without hindrance, let the Jesus prayer cleave to your breath. If vigilance is the fruit of prayer, nonetheless, certain spiritual dispositions contribute to its development and must in any case accompany it. In order for the work of the heart to be accomplished as it ought, prayer and these dispositions must form an inseparable whole. Fasting, silence, Hezekiah, solitude, the remembrance of death, and above all, mourning and humility. Mourning and compunction especially encourage vigilance, insofar as they continually furnish man with a conscience pricked by his sins and the passions that dwell within him. One father says, quote, Blessed is the man who always has his sins before his eyes, for such a man is always vigilant. And Isaiah writes, Mourning is perfect watchfulness. Wherever mourning is absent, there can be no vigilance. 7. Therapeutic Effects Attention, vigilance, and what accompanies them appear to be the prerequisites for all spiritual progress and of primary importance in man's spiritual healing. As St. Philotheus of Sinai says, they are saving medicines of the soul. At the same time, these attitudes are constitutive of man's spiritual health. St. Isaac the Syrian writes, The wealth and health of the soul are formed by vigilance and attention. Ascetical homily 38. Through these attitudes and what accompanies them, the mind regains its proper state and returns to its normal order and natural activity. Vigilance in particular, as St. Philotheus of Sinai says, the place of the intellect, the place of the noose. Vladimir Lossky summarizes this patristic teaching well when he states, quote, The human spirit in its normal condition is vigilant. This is the sobriety, the attention of the heart, the faculty of discernment, and of the judgment in spiritual matters, which are characteristic of human nature in its state of wholeness, from his mystical theology of the Eastern Church. To say that the mind regains its proper order and returns to its normal functioning means notably that it ceases to be enthralled despite itself by images and thoughts. It ceases to be held captive by them and constantly distracted, dispersed, divided, and finally rendered insane by them, and through them by the demons. See Ascetical Homily 36. Vigilance gives back to man perfect mastery over his thoughts, since henceforth none of them escape his notice. Rather, he submits each one to discernment, accepting or rejecting in accordance to its nature. St. John Cassian writes on this topic, quote from his conferences, 
The image of this perfect mind is very beautifully designated by the centurion in the gospel. His virtue and steadfastness did not let him be led astray by the thoughts that assailed him, but in accordance with his judgment he admitted the good ones and drove away the opposing ones without any difficulty. Quote, I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Matthew 8, 9. If we also, struggling manfully against disturbances and vices, are able to subject them to our authority and discretion and warring in our flesh, can extinguish our passions, subjugate the unstable cohort of our thoughts to the rule of reason, as a reward for such triumphs, we shall be promoted to the rank of this spiritual centurion. Thus raised to the height of this dignity, we also shall have this power and strength of command, so that we may not be led astray by thoughts that we do not want, but may be able to remain in and cling to those by which we are spiritually delighted, commanding evil suggestions to go, and they will go, but telling the good one to come, and they will come. End of quote. Conference 7.5. To continue, it is not only conscious thoughts that man is successfully in subjecting to his judgment and will, but also thoughts of which he was previously unaware. The sustained practice of vigilance allows man to access the hidden depths of his soul and to raise to the surface of his awareness his spiritual subconscious. We know of this observ observation of Evagrius taken up by St. Maximus Quote, many passions are hidden in our souls. They can be brought to light only when the objects that rouse them are present. Vigilance and prayer enable man to drive out temptations, to be purified of them, and henceforth to keep himself from them. Thus St. Isaac writes that the ascesis of the mind that is the work of the heart guards us against secret passions lest we encounter any of them in the hidden country, the spiritual land. Sadako Homily 17. Indeed, through the constant practice of vigilance and prayer, the mind is purified, made keener and sharper. It perceives the slightest thought and becomes capable of determining its exact origin and nature. As we've noticed, whoever fights against thoughts will see them multiply. Thoughts he has never before observed will appear to him. His soul, which up until now was like a lake, the sur surface of which, seeming to be calm and clear water, is moved and troubled by the blows of vigilance and prayer, showing forth its nauseating and disturbing contents, and allowing that detritus and decay concealed in its depths to rise to the surface. St. Diodocus writes on this subject, quote, Our bodily eyes, when healthy, can see everything, even gnats and mosquitoes flying about in the air, but when they are clouded by some discharge, they see large objects only indistinctly, and small things not at all. Similarly, if the soul, through attentiveness, reduces the blindness caused by the love of this world, it will consider its slightest faults to be very grave. And St. Philotheus of Sinai, after noting that the soul of fallen man is bound with chains of darkness, and her inner eyes are blind, writes in his 40 texts on watchfulness, number 19, quote, Only when she begins to pray to God and to acquire watchfulness while praying will she be freed from this darkness through prayer. Otherwise, she will remain a prisoner. 
For through prayer the soul discovers that there is in the heart another fight and another hidden type of opposition and a different kind of warfare against the thoughts provoked by the evil spirits. End quote. He writes further, quote, Watchfulness cleanses the conscience and makes it lucid. Thus cleansed, it immediately shines out like a light that has been uncovered, banishing much darkness. Once this darkness has been banished, through constant and genuine watchfulness, the conscience then reveals things hidden to us. Being aware of and mastering all one's thoughts contributes to achieving what is the main result of the constant practice of vigilance and the prayer that accompanies it. To wit, man succeeds by God's grace more and more in refraining from sins in thought and in deed. He is gradually purified of his past sins, delivered from all his wicked thoughts, released from all his evil behaviors and predispositions, whether conscious or unconscious, in short, freed from every evil that was in him. This is why St. Barsanufius recommends, quote, be vigilant so as to exterminate with vigor the eight foreign nations, i.e. the eight main passions, and thereby all those that proceed from them, Calling to mind attention, St. Gregory Palamas writes similarly, quote, Set this guard, therefore, over your soul and body, for thereby you will readily free yourself from the evil passions of body and soul. St. Isaac notes, Purity of thoughts has its source in sorrows and in vigilance. Abba Piman asserts, If we are active and very vigilant, we will find no defilement in us. And St. Nikiforos the Solitary writes, Attentiveness is the sign of true repentance. It is rejection of sin. It is the unreserved assurance that our sins are forgiven. St. Diodokos of Fotiki remarks, When, however, through great attentiveness the soul begins to be purified, it also begins to experience the fear of God as a life-giving medicine, which, through the reproaches it arouses in the conscience, burns the soul in the fire of dispassion. For his part, St. Hezekius the priest in the Philokalia considers vigilance and prayer as an emetic that allows the soul to vomit up all the poisonous thoughts it had taken in. Quote, Noxious foods give trouble when taken into the body, but as soon as he feels the pain, the person who has eaten them can quickly take some emetic and so be unharmed. Similarly, once the noose that has imbibed evil thoughts senses their bitterness it can easily expel them and get rid of them completely by means of the jesus prayer uttered from the depths of the heart this lesson and the experience corresponding to it have by god's grace conveyed understanding to those who practice watchfulness end of quote from on watchfulness and holiness 188 to continue, Dr. Larche writes, In fact, freedom from wicked thoughts and the passions is achieved gradually. It makes every, if, if man makes every effort with patience, steadfastness, obedience, and in a continual and systematic manner to reject the thoughts from the moment of their appearance, he will reduce their number and strength bit by bit, and slowly will weaken the passions from which they proceed or which come forth from them, since these passions no longer find in him any energy that would allow them to subsist. An elder says, If you speak with and take pleasure in wicked thoughts, they will always take root in your heart. They will grow and will not depart from your heart. 
On the contrary, if you do not converse with them, and instead of delighting in them, you hate them, they'll perish and leave your heart. This practice thus allows one not only to reject thoughts, but also to eliminate them. It also enables one to destroy the passions themselves all the way to their original source and including all the traces they may have left in the soul. St. Hezekias the priest therefore writes, quote, If we preserve as we should that purity of heart or watch and guard of the noose, we'll uproot all passions and evils from our hearts. For this reason, he defines vigilance as, quote, A spiritual method which, if sedulously practiced over a long period, completely frees us with God's help from impassioned thoughts, impassioned words, and evil actions. It is, in the true sense, purity of heart. Freeing man from his passions, vigilance in conjunction with prayer contributes to the establishment of the virtues in their stead. St. Nikiforos the Solitary says, quote, Attentiveness is rejection of sin and recovery of virtue. And St. Hezekias the priest teaches, Watchfulness is a way embracing every virtue, every commandment. On watchfulness and holiness, number three. This therapeutic function of vigilance, which frees man from his spiritual illness constituted by the passions in order to establish within him the health of the virtues, is only the first aspect of watchfulness. Once health has been acquired, it is up to man to preserve it, and vigilance and attention help in this regard as well. This preventative function could not be expressed more clearly than by the designations guarding of the heart and guarding of the noose. These are basically synonymous, but the fathers prefer to use them when they are making a point of underlying this connotation. In, any, in the certain case, vigilance accompanied by prayer, which, let us recall, is inseparable from the former, is always preventative in character. In the case of the man who is fighting against the passions, it aims at avoiding any thought that could nourish the passions. In the case of the man who has been freed from them, its goal is to avoid any thought that might reintroduce them into his heart. Yet, in the first case, the preventative care is one of the components of therapy, whereas in the second case it serves essentially to avoid any relapse and preserve what has been acquired, the soul's health. St. Barsanufius stresses this explicitly. Quote, Let us remain in prayer so as not to fall back into the same passions, nor into others. If someone, while eating some food, damages his stomach, liver, or intestines, when he has been healed by the physician's art and care, will not be careless regarding Part 4, Implementation of Therapy himself, lest something worse befall him, Remembering his past danger in accordance with what the Lord said to the man healed by him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. John 5.14 St. Dorotheus of Gaza notes the same, albeit on a more general level. Concerning the body, quote, If one lives disorderly, without watching one's health, either an overabundance or a deficiency of humors arises, and thereupon follows a disequilibrium. Regarding the soul, the same is true. If man is lacking in vigilance and does not take care for himself, he easily drifts off route, either to the right or the left, and provokes this illness, which is sin. And St. Isaac the Syrian writes quite succinctly, The soul's wealth and health are made of vigilant sobriety and attention, 
As long as man lives, he needs vigilant sobriety, attention, and watchfulness for guarding his treasure. But if he disregards these conditions, he falls ill and his treasure is stolen. We have said this before. Man cannot escape temptation and cannot avoid the demons suggesting thoughts to him. But once man has acquired the power to guard himself through vigilance and prayer, he become capable of being totally indifferent to whatever the demons suggest to him and of countering them with utter contempt without being in the least affected or disturbed by their proposals or relinquishing his place. Like the psalmist, I was dumb and opened not my mouth. Psalm 38.10 When man has gained a definitive victory over his adversaries by God's grace after waging a lengthy battle, he comes to know profound peace. Not just his mind, but also his inner faculties. They remain quiet. This inner peace following simultaneously through the practice of vigilance from the mastery of thoughts, the elimination of the passions, the victory over the demons, the quieting of the faculties and the silence of thoughts resulting from all this corresponds to one of the primary meanings of the word Hezekiah encountered so often in ascetical writings. The fathers consider Hezekiah to be such a characteristic result of vigilance that they hold the fulfillment of the latter to be synonymous with the former. In this chapter, we've essentially viewed vigilance as a means to fighting impassioned thoughts and purifying the heart of them. We shall see when the time comes that vigilance also has as its function the avoiding of even indifferent or good representations, images, or thoughts. This is a condition, a com completing the preceding one, complementing the preceding one, of pure prayer and contemplation. The second function is properly called guarding of the mind, whereas the first, strictly speaking, is called guarding of the heart. The Hezekiah resulting from this watchfulness thus refers to the silence devoid of any representation whatsoever, the total peace of the mind that is exclusively and imperturbably occupied with the thought of God in a heart that has been purified. Attention thus becomes attention to God, and vigilance, which means being awake, no longer means only being awake with regard to oneself and guarding oneself, but being awake to God and guarding God within oneself. It is in this twofold sense that the fathers understand vigilance as achieving wakefulness of mind. Thus St. John Climacus writes, a friend of Hezekiah is a courageous and decisive thought which keeps constant vigil, an unruffled mind. Here we see another basic effect of vigilance manifest itself. It heals man of several pathological states with regard to his true being and God that sin had established in him by taking their place. Spiritual slumber, indifference, forgetfulness, nonchalance, negligence, distraction, unawareness, and ignorance. The three most important of these to which all the others boil down are forgetfulness, negligence, and ignorance, which St. Mark the Ascetic and St. John Damascene in suit calls the three foreign giants, or the three powerful giants of the devil, thanks to which the rest of the passions grow and are strengthened, and by which the entire host of evil spirits creeps in, establishes itself, and is able to realize its plans 
but without which it cannot maintain itself. We thus see the fundamental place that vigilance and its companions hold in man's spiritual healing and his return to health. Chapter 6. Adjuvant Therapy, Bodily Asceticism We have seen that in a large sense, the notion of asceticism may be likened to that of praxis, which signifies the twofold movement by which man is purified of the passions and acquires the virtues. However, since man must first of all confront the so-called bodily passions, and since he encounters in his spiritual life obstacles due to certain bodily states, Asceticism is often understood more specifically as a collection of practices or exercises directly involving the body. One thus speaks generally of bodily asceticism, distinguishing it from inner asceticism, sometimes called asceticism of the heart, which it proceeds logically but not chronologically. The apostle refers to this bodily asceticism when he says, quote, I pommel my body and subdue it, 1 Corinthians 9.27. At the head of these constituent practices, we must mention fasting, vigils, exhausting labors, and matanyas, prostrations. Yet all the pains to which man submits voluntarily, as well as those which he takes on when they arise without his seeking them, that is, illnesses, afflictions, and the various tribulations we must all undergo throughout our earthly life, may also be included here. Thus the Apostle writes, quote, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, through great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watching, hunger. 2 Corinthians 6, 4-5 And again, I was in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. These ascetical practices are not an end in themselves, and the greater or lesser suffering accompanying them is most often not linked in any way to a desire for self-punishment, expiation, or satisfaction. Certainly, they consist in weakening the body and taking on its sufferings, but this is done with the aim of submitting the body to the soul, the reason, and the noose. These practices also have the aim of purifying the body, of mortifying the passions linked to it, but also via the body of purifying the soul. Finally, the aim is to abolish some of the body's states that can present an obstacle to some of the soul's functions and get in the way of the spiritual life. In any case, bodily asceticism serves inner asceticism. It acts in some way as an adjuvant therapy. Likewise, the fathers consider the pains engendered by this asceticism as healing cures. Thus St. Elias the priest writes, quote, If you are concerned for your soul's health, do not despair of your sickness as though it were incurable, but apply to it the potent medicine of ascetic effort and you will get rid of it. The fathers also hold as remedies the sorrows that come upon man from without, involuntarily, and which he takes on in the same way as the aforementioned. If God does not allow, always will them, since they are often manifestations of evil. Nonetheless, he wills that when they should occur, man should turn them to his spiritual prophet. Thus, St. Isaac the Syrian speaks of these trials as the multitude of cures that the physician sends for the health of the inner man. Sedical Homily 8, 
And addressing God, he says, Thou hast willed that I derive good from my trials, and that my soul be kept sound before thee. St. Maximus, for his part, calls to mind voluntary and involuntary sufferings, stressing that the latter are sent by God to each person in the form most appropriate for his healing. Quote, Just as the physicians who care for the body do not give to all a single self-same cure, so too does God, who heals the infirmities of the soul, not provide a treatment that fits every illness, but when he gives to each soul what is necessary for it, he accomplishes its healing. Therefore, let us who are thus cared for give thanks, even if what befalls us is trying. And St. Mark the ascetic notes, quote, When a sinful soul does not accept the afflictions that come to it, the angels say, We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Jeremiah 51.9 Furthermore, the fathers highlight that the less man has submitted himself to the pains of asceticism, the more he must undergo involuntary suffering. This is not some kind of chastisement for his negligence, but rather a providential gift from God in order to permit man to receive the spiritual good things that would otherwise remain inaccessible to him. They insist on the fact that without effort and, without, and even without suffering, it is impossible for man not only to be purified from the least passion, but even to acquire the least virtue, to pass from the state of a fallen creature to that of the new creation. St. John Damascene notes, quote, Conversion, the passion from what is contrary to nature to what is according to nature, is accomplished by asceticism and sufferings. St. Isaac the Syrian repeats this many times, quote, The commandments of God are fulfilled in afflictions and torments, and the cause of virtue is the narrow path of affliction. Again, ascetical homily 27. The virtues are linked to afflictions. Whoever withdraws from afflictions inevitably withdraws from virtue. If you desire virtue, accept to be bruised. End of quote. Do not be surprised if when you begin to bear virtue, the harness and the violence of afflictions assail you from every angle. For a virtue not practiced in difficulty cannot be a virtue. It is justly this difficulty that leads one to speak of virtue, as did St. John. Virtue usually results from difficulties. When it is linked to comfort, it is blameworthy. The blessed Mark the ascetic also said, Every virtue is called such because it is a cross. Suffering is all the more necessary for the purification of the passions that the acquisition of the virtues presupposes. As St. John Cashin underscores, quote, we must exert ourselves twice as hard to expel vice as to acquire virtue. Man's task here is to break the links that tie him so strongly to this world and to renounce the tendencies constitutive of his fallen nature and which for him are like a second nature, all the more so since they have been embedded themselves and been fortified through habit. St. John Climacus recalls that man here is in a situation like someone gravely ill unable to obtain any immediate improvement for his condition. From step 26. As for one who suffered a prolonged illness can scarcely obtain heart, health in an instant, so it is impossible suddenly to overcome the passions or even one passion. St. Gregory of Nyssa also takes a medical point of view 
in evoking the unavoidable character of the pains and sufferings connected to treatment and explains them in part. Comparing the passions to warts, a completely justified comparison, insofar as the passions in relation to man's original nature are pathological excrescences, contranatural additions, he writes, quote, in his catechetical oration, by reason of the great affinity that has been established between the soul and evil, behold what occurs. The incision of the wart provides a sharp pain on the surface of the body, since what had contranaturally developed within nature sticks to the surface through a sort of sympathy, and an unexpected mixture is produced from the foreign element in our own being, such that removing the contranatural element results in a painful and sharp sensation. Having set out these preliminaries, we must now present in great detail the end goals of bodily asceticism and what can serve as such. The most immediate goal of bodily asceticism is to put an end to the unnatural submission of the soul to the body, to free the soul from the body's stranglehold, to restore the dominion of the soul over the body, to submit the body and the soul to the sovereignty of the mind. Thus St. Thalassius writes, Quote, the intelligence by nature submits to the logos, that is reason, and disciplines and subjugates the body. <clears throat> we have seen how sin and the passions enslave the soul contranaturally to the desires of the flesh, and how they thenceforth cause the soul to be beside itself. In a certain way, notes St. Dorotheus of Gaza, it finds itself acting as one whole with the body, having become entirely flesh. For his part, St. Isaac comments that when the soul begins to live with the very life of the body, this is not its natural state. Sadako Homily 83. In order for the soul to recover its natural state and to live spiritual, that is, in submission to the spirit, it is absolutely essential that it regain its independence vis-à-vis -vis the body and mastery over the latter. The reign of the spirit presupposes the crucifixion of the body. Ceasing to be subject to the body and dominated by its preoccupations, no longer dedicating its abilities to satisfying the body's desires and being parasized by it, the soul comes to know new life in which it is able to blossom fully in the sense and form proper to its nature. Mastery over the body is thus not sought after in and of itself, as in the case of certain non-Christian practices, the precepts of which have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, but which at base are of no value and only serve the indulgence of the flesh, as the Holy Apostle teaches. Colossians 2.23 What Christian bodily asceticism aims at is piety, as the Apostle further says, since bodily training in itself is of some value, whereas godliness is of value in every way. 1 Timothy 4.8 Elsewhere, he refers to his work, Theology of Illness. We showed how suffering linked to bodily illnesses was able to be taken on spiritually in Christ and thus acquire a purifying function. The same remarks can be made regarding the sufferings accompanying asceticism. The fathers highlight the power they have, by God's grace, to purify man of his sins and passions. St. Gregory Palamas notes, quote, The physical pain that comes from fasting, 
vigils, and other similar practices alone puts to death man's ability to sin. And St. Nestida Stathatos, quote, We are purged of the stains of sin, either through embracing ascetic labor willingly or through afflictions that come unsought. This teaching confirms, conforms to the counsel of the Apostle Peter, quote, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin. 1 Peter 4.1 Regarding the bodily passions, that is, those passions directly connected with the body, such as gluttony and lust, it must be stressed that bodily asceticism is indispensable for reducing them. St. John Cashin recalls, gluttony and fornication require external matter in order to be consummated, and thus they operate through bodily action, while the passions that have arisen at the prompting of the soul alone have need of the medicine of a simple heart. Bodily passions are only remedied by a twofold cure. The mind's attentiveness is not enough of itself to check their urgings, as it sometimes does in the case of anger or sadness and other passions, which it can expel by mental effort alone and without chastising the flesh. Bodily discipline must come to its assistance, and this is accompanied by fasting, vigils, and works of penance, prostrations, and to these is added living in a remote place that cannot be overcome except by the toil of both body and soul. Bodily asceticism here appears to be the necessary companion to temperance, which it also helps to establish within the soul. Even though bodily asceticism is applicable essentially to bodily passions, it nonetheless plays a significant role in the fight against the passions of the soul. Certainly this may appear strange, and according to the father, accordingly, the fathers, before giving their teaching on this point, generally acknowledge that this fact raises questions. St. Dorotheus of Gaza thus writes, quote, What influence can bodily toil have on the disposition of the soul? In his instruction too, and how can bodily labors be the virtue of the soul? The response to this question is found in the connection uniting body and soul in the conditions of the earthly existence of the human composite. The soul, writes St. Isaac the Syrian, naturally shares in the afflictions of the body, since its own movements have been linked to that of the body by incomprehensible wisdom. The soul begins to live with the very life of the body. On the other hand, and more generally, one can say that the conditions of man's material existence have a certain impact on his inner state. St. Dorotheus of Gaza observes, quote, the dispositions of the soul are not the same with the man who is well as with the sick man, with him who hungers and him who is sated. They are also note the same with the man mounted on a horse and the man mounted on an ass, with him who sits on a throne and him who sits on the ground, with him who wears beautiful raiment and him who is dressed poorly. Thus the soul is affected by everything the body does or suffers, and the converse of this principle is also true. As St. Mark the ascetic notes, quote, voluntary affliction is one of these parts of our nature, that is the body or the mind, benefits the other. To suffer affliction with the mind benefits the flesh, and to suffer it with the flesh benefits the mind. In studying the process of the fall, we have seen how man has turned aside from spiritual realities in order to turn toward 
sensual realities. He gives in by means of the senses to the lure of pleasure, experiencing from that moment on an unreasonable love for his body and striving to satisfy its cravings, falling, in other words, into self-love, the mother of all passions. Bodily asceticism contributes to the reversal of this process of self-love, while sin has made use of the natural link between body and soul to establish and reinforce the passions, asceticism, on the contrary, uses this bond to reduce the passions and establish the virtues and sub subject the body to harsh treatment. Asceticism sets itself directly against self-love, striking with one blow at the passions it engenders and correlatively promoting the emergence of their corresponding virtues. St. Isaac notes, quote, self-love proceeds all the passions and disdain for bodily rest precedes all the virtues. Furthermore, in order to stress the therapeutic value of the difficulty man imposes on himself, but also of those which come to him externally and which he takes on just like the former, the saint also says, quote, from ascetical homily 71, just as curative remedy purify and drive from the body foul humors, so too does the violence of torments purify and drive from the heart the vices. This essential contribution of ascetical efforts to the healing of the passions and above all their mother, self-love, is explained by the fact that the former are the antagonists of the pleasure which nourishes the latter. Thus, St. Thalassius writes, assiduous struggle will slowly root out self-indulgence, and again, hardship and distress, whether of our own choosing or providential, destroy sensual pleasure. St. Isaac, for his part, writes, quote, Affliction kills the pleasure of the passions, whereas comfort nourishes and increases this. And St. Nicetus Stathatos advises, If you have enslaved yourself to bodily pleasure and indulgence to the point of repletion, you will need a corresponding measure of ascetic labor and hardship. Thus one form of repletion will counter another. Pain will counter pleasure. Bodily labor will counter bodily ease. Thus man progressively becomes insensitive to carnal desires through ascases. St. Maximus, who as we have seen, ascribes a fundamental role in the process of man's fall to the quest for pleasure and the avoidance of pain, sees in the voluntary sufferings of asceticism as well as the involuntary sufferings taken on in like fashion a special means for man to return to his original state. He thus writes, Deceived in the beginning by the illusion of pleasure, we prefer death to true life. We have thus come to know with gratitude the bodily suffering that destroys pleasure. Thus, with the death of pleasure, which causes to disappear with itself the death that had been occasioned by the latter, we regain life in coming back to ourselves. Although all the passions derive from the quest for pleasure and the avoidance of pain, the taking on of sufferings allows us to eliminate the passions and acquire the virtues. Quote, if the strength of sin customarily increases when the flesh is well treated, it is obvious that the strength of virtue naturally and rightly increases when the flesh is poorly treated. And to fight amidst sufferings is the combat of virtue, the prize of victory being passionlessness of soul in those who patiently endure. Asceticism especially reduces the passions connected to the passionate part of the soul, 
constituted, let us recall, by the irascible and desirative powers, whose link with the body is the most direct. For this reason, Evagrius teaches that labor, fasting, vigils restore health to the passionate part of the soul. Practicos 49. St. Maximus likewise considers such practices as remedies. For his part, St. Hezekius the priest, in Watchfulness and Holiness 112, writes, quote, Bodily discipline and ascetic practice, such as fasting and self-control, sleeping on the ground, standing, vigils, and the rest, which are related to the body, stop that aspect of the body which is vulnerable to passion from committing sinful acts. These things train the outer self and are guard against the workings of passion. End of quote. The passions of the desirative part are the ones most susceptible to being contained and reduced by bodily asceticism. Quote, certain things stop the movement of the passions and do not allow them to grow. Others subdue them and make them diminish. For instance, where desire is concerned, fasting, labor, and vigils do not allow it to grow, writes St. Maximus. And Evagrius, hunger, toil, and solitude are the means of extinguishing the flames of desire. This effect of asceticism over the desirative power is correlative with its power to reduce man's attraction to sensual pleasure. St. Maximus notes, quote, when the desiring aspect of the soul is frequently excited, it implants in the soul a habit of self-indulgence which is difficult to break. This is cured by long exercise in fasting, vigils, and prayer. Four centuries on love. The effects of asceticism, though at first impacting the passionate part of the soul, are likewise manifested on the rational part of the soul, especially in the fight against pride and vainglory, its own passions, and in the corresponding acquisition of the virtue of humility. An elder teaches the path leading to humility is that of physical labor. Here we clearly see the link between what the body undergoes on account of asceticism and what the soul in turn experiences. Regarding this statement, St. Dorotheus of Gaza inquires, why is it said that bodily labors lead the soul to humility? His answer, the wretched soul suffers along with the body, and it's, itself is affected by all that the body does. Labor humbles the body, and when the body has been humbled, the soul also is humbled with it, in such a way that the elder had reason to say that bodily labor also leads to humility. While a body that has been nourished too well and has received too much rest gives man a false notion of fullness and autonomy, introducing pride in him, asceticism weakens man's body and thus causes him to sense his real fragility, the weakness of his present nature, the ephemeral character of his bodily and earthly existence, the relativity of his being. This labor thus leads him to humility. As St. Isaac observes, Quote, the more sufferings increase, the more sufficiency diminishes. At the same time and by the same reason, bodily asceticism leads the soul to an attitude of compunction. That painful feeling man has for his sinful state, his spiritual weakness, and the distance separating him from God. Moreover, these ascetical efforts have the effect of reducing the number, movement, and strength of passionate thoughts that come to the mind, contributing to the establishment of calm within it. 
For as St. Isaac notes, the thoughts cannot ramble on to themselves when the body is afflicted. When one endures sufferings and torments with joy, one can keep a tight rein on one's thoughts. Sedical Homily 27 We thus see that bodily asceticism does not only train the outer self and guard it against the active passions, as St. Hezekius the priest underscores, but also purifies the inner man by helping him combat his thoughts. All these effects of bodily asceticism encourage prayer, not only because they bring it about, but also because they contribute to its purity. Thus St. Gregory Palamas writes, quote, We certainly need the physical pain that comes from fasting, vigils, and other similar practices if we apply ourselves to prayer. Indeed, this pain alone causes the sinfulness of the body to die, weakening and curbing the thoughts that provoke brutal passions. Furthermore, this pain at the outset brings about holy compunction, thus eradicating even past stains, attracting more than anything else divine favor and stimulating a good disposition to prayer. For God will not despise a broken heart, following David. And following Gregory the theologian, one can only serve God by mortification. This is why the Lord teaches in the Gospels that prayer can accomplish much when united to fasting. Bodily asceticism does not only contribute to purifying the mind, it also hones it, makes it lighter and more apt for all its proper spiritual functions. Fasting and vigils in particular have this effect. By purifying and refining the mind, bodily asceticism contributes to moving it towards theoria, contemplation of God. The suffering linked to this ascetic practice is merely the provisional condition for attaining to the delight in the good things of the kingdom, which will infinitely compensate for this pain. Quote, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 In order for bodily asceticism to be followed by all these effects, it is absolutely necessary that it be carried out in moderation. If asceticism implies a certain weakening of the body, nonetheless such practice must not mistreat or debilitate it. We have stressed <clears throat> several times that Christianity in truth does not disdain the body, rather it calls for respecting the body inasmuch as it is fully a part of the human com composite created by God, good by nature in its wholeness, and also inasmuch as it is destined along with the soul to be resurrected and to no deification. In and of itself, the body is not an obstacle to the spiritual life, and it's only a prison or tomb for the soul to the extent that the soul submits to the body's passionate desires. The fight must be oriented against the latter. St. Paul teaches we are not contending against flesh and blood, and he advises, may each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like heathen who do not know God. 1 Thessalonians 4.4 4. Abba Piman says, We have not learned how to kill our body, but how to kill our passions. The Apostle saying further, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live, indicates on the one hand that asceticism does not have the body itself as an object, but rather the body's passions, and on the other hand, that its ultimate goal is life in God. To fight against the body itself would be to mistake one's adversary, and to be ignorant of the true end goal of asceticism. 
This is why St. Paul, even while saying, I pummel my body, remarks, No man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church. Ephesians 5.29 In the spiritual life, the body must be the soul's co-worker. It must itself accomplish God's will and serve the soul in all its relations to it, helping the soul with all its might. This is why, from this perspective, man must not only not hate his body, but, as St. Maximus says, even love his flesh dispassionately and nourish and care for it as a servant of divine things. St. Basil of Ankara likewise advises caring for the body as a helper, without which the spiritual life would be impossible. Quote, one must also take care of the body, not because it is the body, but in order to have an aid, I say, for philosophy, either in order to be able to read the philosophers or to concentrate, as is fitting in prayer, the mind that languishes in the body, or in a general way to do whatever might touch on philosophy. Footnote, let us recall that in patristic language, philosophy generally means the spiritual life, more precisely praxis or asceticism in the broad sense of the term, and the philosophers who lead such a life. To conclude, in the passage of his rule, where he writes of bodily asceticism, St. Nilsorsky counsels thus, quote, If the body is unable, one ought to strengthen it as much as it that is ascetical labor is necessary. To debilitate the body would be to render it unfit for its spiritual task and would mean weakening the soul, giving the link uniting the two. In some cases, this would even mean leading it to sin. Instead of contributing to the weakening of the passions, a bodily asceticism that is excessive and poorly conducted risks arousing and strengthening them instead of uplifting the mind. Such asceticism risks lowering it to earthly preoccupations, especially because of the pain that is felt. If this pain is too strong, it can become obsessive, turning all attention to itself. St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Basil of Ankara warn against this danger at length. Both treaties on virginity... St. Basil in particular writes, quote, It is proven that if the dominion of the body over the soul is a hindrance to acquiring good, conversely, its weakness when the bodily instrument is unable to serve the soul's desires, likewise means elimination in the race toward good. And St. Gregory gives counsel from this perspective, quote, Through asceticism, it is the vices of the flesh that one seeks to extinguish, not the flesh itself. Each person must become the master of his own flesh, but with moderation, lest the flesh in its revolt end up pushing us to some sin, and so that it might preserve enough vitality so as to continue effectively to accomplish well what it must do. End of quote. One must therefore never lose sight of the end goal of bodily asceticism, which is to promote the spiritual life. The ultimate goal of asceticism, St. Gregory of Nyssa says, is not in any way to aim at oppressing the body, but to facilitate the functions of the soul. On the basis of this principle, the practical rule of ascetic labor must be, as St. Gregory of Nyssa points out, quote, to keep oneself both from a lack of moderation on either side, by keeping watch, that the prosperity of the flesh not bury the noose, and conversely, 
let its excessive exhaustion not render it feeble, earth to earth, occupied with bodily sufferings. It would also be good to recall the wise prescription forbidding any swerving to the right or to the left. The task here is to see to it that he who gathers much has nothing over, and he who gathers little has no lack. 2 Corinthians 8.15 But cutting out what exceeds moderation in both directions, one will take care to add what is lacking, and with equal zeal will keep from whatever renders the body of no use in either case, neither pressing the body into lack of discipline and control through excessive well-being, nor rendering it sickly, relaxed, and lacking vigor for the service it must perform through excessive exhaustion. St. Basil of Ankara makes the same recommendations, writing, quote, On this mount that is the body to which a natural bond unites us, we must continue the race of virtue by abo- avoiding both relaxing the reins too much as well as holding them too tightly. For this reason, it is also fitting to examine carefully the state of our body. This examination and the definition of the just measure of bodily asceticism fall under the purview of the virtue of prudence or spiritual discernment, which we have already discussed. End of volume two.